Hello and welcome to this episode of the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you this week? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely fan-fucking-tastic. That's very good to hear. How are you? I'm fantastic as well. You know, got the, the fresh fade yesterday. You know, had a nice workout this morning. A coffee sitting in front of me. What more does a man need? Exactly. How's the hamstring getting on? It's uh, healing. I had my post-op MRI three weeks ago at six weeks post-op, and I had very minimal hamstring fibers actually reattached. So that wasn't exactly fantastic, but the intent is that um, rehab will take care of the rest, that there's enough scaffolding there for it to heal. So we let the body do its job and encourage it with training. Splendid. But you could be left in a situation where your hamstring is just... Yeah. Yeah. Um, or at least very weak and at risk of re-rupture, but we'll see. We'd love to see it. <laughs> um, but maybe that's something we'll talk about in a future episode. Maybe we'll do a, a kind of a rehab episode or something. But anyway, today's episode, following on from our last episode where we talked about a bit of a, a, a training overview, we're going to do a bit of a nutrition overview. Because again, we want to be able to send clients and you know people asking us about this kind of stuff oh, like, uh, what should I do with my nutrition? Or how do I set up my diet? Or how do I think about setting up my diet? We just want to have a resource where you can you can just dip in and go, yeah, this is, this is good information. This is something that I can use going forward. Now, the unfortunate thing about nutrition and the diet and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it is that it is actually relatively straightforward in theory but it's actually incredibly difficult in practice. Uh, and that's for a, a number of reasons. First of all, like food costs money. So you might know of a, oh, this is how I should be doing the diet, whatever. This is how I should be doing nutrition, but you might not have the, the finances to be able to afford that. You know, It also is highly dependent on, we'll call it like socioeconomic factors, not just the cost of food, but also the availability, the access of food, and then also the the marketing that goes along with that in terms of, you know, you might live in a, a lower socioeconomic status area. And as a result, you're actually inundated with, you know, McDonald's around you and, you know, fast food restaurants and like all that kind of stuff. So there's a huge amount of behind the scenes stuff that also plays into this. And unfortunately, we're not going to cover all that stuff today because what we really want to cover today is, okay, assuming all factors are equal, how do we set up the diet so that we're in a good position for whatever we're trying to accomplish with the diet, health, fitness, body composition, like whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish, how do we actually think about the diet from a theoretical standpoint, at least, you know, but we do always have to go back to the thing or go back to the fact that there are socioeconomic factors at play, you know? Um, so do you mind to say about that, Lord Gary? I think just appreciating that diet is, diet is the way it is for any individual for far more reasons than simply health, you know, or considerations about what the nutrient status of the individual or the food they're consuming is, okay? It's, it's never that simple. For some of us who are very neurotic about our nutrition choices and about managing our health, that might be the primary determinant. But for most of us, for most of our lives, that's not really the primary determinant. So understanding that 
there are cultural factors, there are preferences, there are socioeconomic barriers and facilitators to having a particular diet that gives you better context, particularly for the practice of nutrition as a nutritionist, as a personal trainer or anyone else who's advising or maybe making public health policy. All those considerations are very important. But at the same time, it's also important to understand at the very basic level, what really matters when it comes to nutrition. And then we can start to consider how those other factors might facilitate or act as a barrier to the enactment of these basic nutrition principles. 100%. So Gary, how do we get started with the diet? What do we do? Like we're an individual. Okay, we're take all the other stuff into account. Fantastic. We understand that it's multifactorial. We might be able to set up the perfect diet here in this episode. Um, but there might still be barriers to actually doing that in, in the real world, you know, when you actually try to implement it, like, okay, we take all that stuff into account, but how do we set up the quote unquote perfect diet? Where do we start? So first and foremost, the most fundamental consideration when it comes to nutrition is the energy content of the diet. That is fundamentally why we consume food because we require energy and the way that we talk about energy when it comes to nutrition is not at the very basic level of ATP or the breaking of phosphate bonds. We're not talking about these things at the very minor molecular level. What we're talking about is a proxy for the energy content of the diet, and that is a caloric value or calories. And when we talk about calories, people like to maybe confuse the issue by saying that, oh, well, a calorie is not a calorie. Uh, a calorie from this food is not the same as a calorie from that food. But that's simply incorrect because a calorie is simply a way of trying to create a proxy measure for the energy that someone's going to get from food. It's not assumed then that all foods are going to have the same impact on body composition. No one thinks that. Everyone acknowledges that foods have different effects on body composition based on their macronutrient content, based on their fiber content, how satiating they are, et cetera. So we can move up layers while still appreciating that at the basic level, the calorie content of foods and the overall diet is a very, very important consideration. And one of the things that people will often say here is that, well, yes, calories are very important for someone looking for a body composition goal, but I'm interested in health or I'm interested in performance, but that's not enough to get out of considering calories. Because number one, when it comes to health, if you're consuming excess calories, you are going to put yourself in a position where you're at risk of various chronic diseases, whether it be obesity-related, cardiometabolic disease, uh, diabetes, etc. If you have insufficient calories, very clearly you're at risk of starvation and the complications that come with malnutrition. So if you're considering health as a goal of your nutrition, calories are still a very fundamental variable. Similarly with performance, number two, excess is going to lead to detriments in your body composition. So if you have excess body fat relative to your muscle mass, you now have a higher body weight that you have to move through space. And more of that body weight is consumed or is composed of body fat, which isn't helping you in your performance. So that can limit your performance, even if it's excess calories. Similarly, insufficient calories, very clearly, it's going to reduce your exercise capacity and also your capacity to recover from your training and to adapt to that training. So again, we see it's important for health. We see it's important for performance. And very clearly, it's self-evident that calories would be important for body composition, where if you have excess calories in the diet, 
you're going to gain body fat. You might gain muscle um, along with that, depending on the other stimuli, such as protein intake and the amount of resistance training that you're doing. But you are going to gain excess body fat if you're consuming calories, excess calories, particularly over the long term. And then naturally, if you're consuming insufficient calories, you're going to lose weight in some form. It's going to be a combination of body fat, muscle, muscle glycogen stores. But over the long term, you're going to get leaner. You're probably going to lose some muscle, again, dependent on those other stimuli that are at play. And potentially over time, things like bone and organ mass as well, depending on the extent. But overall, it's very clear that regardless of whether your goal is health, performance, or body composition, the caloric intake of the diet is an absolutely key consideration. Yeah, and this is one of those things where it's actually really annoying when you just hear conversations around this because people either hyper focus on the caloric content of food or they like oh yeah yeah, it doesn't really matter like you know i just make food choices and i don't think about that stuff and 100 percent, there are people out there that are way too hyper focused on calories as the be all and end all like you see this in the iifym community where they're like oh all that matters is calories and maybe they add in protein as well like they they don't think about the quality of the diet they don't think about any of that kind of stuff all that matters is the the quantity of the diet. It's like, oh, I'm measuring my calories. So therefore we're good to go, right? And a lot of these people are, you know, the, the way they talk about this stuff, it's not really stuff that would actually impact in the real world because most people don't want to track calories. Most people don't want to have to use an app. Most people don't want to have to do all this stuff for the rest of their life. Um, but on the other side, we have those individuals that just completely ignore it. We have those individuals that are just like, oh, calories... I tried that calorie, you know, calories in, calories out model, and it doesn't work, you know? And that's just a, a fundamental, like, it, that's just wrong. Like, it, there's no way that that's right. <laughs> like, I, it, it's, it's, it's infuriating when people say that because it actually is meaningless. You know, it's like, you, what are you saying? That energy transfer, like, thermodynamics is wrong? Like, what are you saying here, right? And invariably what they're saying is, like, oh, I tried to do calorie tracking and the food choices that I was making as a result of just focusing on calories were really poor food choices. And as a result, I was not actually staying on track with the amount of calories that I needed to consume, you know? Like, that's invariably what people are saying when they say that. But that was just one way of them setting up their calories, one way of them setting up their diet that led to a, 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 a poor outcome for them, you know? That doesn't mean the fundamental precepts that underlie the, the rationale for, for that diet are actually wrong, you know? And again, you will see this all the time where people go, oh, I'm just focusing on the, the quality of my diet. I'm just focusing on my food selection choices. I'm just focusing on all that kind of stuff. And they still end up over-consuming calories, you know? People be like, oh, yeah, avocado is a, a health food. And then they literally have like 3,000 calories worth of avocado per day, <laughs> you know? Um, because it's you know, relatively higher in fat. Um, so, okay, we've had a little bit of a fucking discussion about calories. How do we set up the diet when we, to take into account calories? What, what do we do? What do we do with this information? Okay, calories are important. Cool. What do I do? Well, this is a very important point because just because calories matter does not mean you have to track calories, okay? And this is important when it comes to understanding how every single diet that you do works. Every diet that leads to a change in body fat, let's say it's a fat loss diet, works through a reduction in caloric intake or 
a change in net caloric balance. You know, it might be that someone exercises more, but for the most part, it's a reduction in caloric intake that's going to lead to a change in body fat levels or a loss of body fat. But this does not mean that you need to be tracking calories. So when people talk about low carb, high fat diets, what do they do? They eat more protein. They vastly restrict their intake of ultra processed foods, junk foods, foods that are very likely to be overconsumed. And yeah, they'll say, oh, I eat as much fat as I want. But I mean, what are they talking about? They're talking about eating steaks. They're talking about maybe adding cheese to their meals. Like realistically, because people are consuming that type of diet, it's very restricted. There's a lot of restraint. So you still end up reducing your overall caloric intake. And this is particularly the case when a low-carb, high-fat diet is consumed in the context of high dietary protein. Because as we'll discuss in a moment, we know that when people consume more protein, they tend to reduce their caloric intake because it's very satiating. So they're the reasons that someone on this type of diet would have a loss of body fat is that they end up consuming less calories. Very similarly, if someone starts a fat loss diet and they go plant-based or vegan, they're somewhere on that plant-based spectrum. Similarly, what do they do? They very frequently eat more fruits and vegetables, they eat more dietary fiber, they reduce their intake of ultra-processed foods, and they end up in a position where they reduce their overall caloric intake. So again, they're all working through the same mechanism, despite the fact that someone might be tracking calories. So in order to leverage the benefits of a calorie-reduced diet, you do not need to be tracking calories. You can simply make changes to your food choices. That'll help with appetite regulation, and then that will lead to you being in a caloric deficit. Now, for those of you who do want to track calories and be a bit more precise with what your intake currently is, of course, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can go online and look up many, many different calorie calculators. They all be fairly similar. And what you're trying to do is calculate your total daily energy expenditure, which often involves a calculation of your BMR or basal metabolic rate. Then you'll have an activity multiplier that will give you a rough approximation of your TDEE or total daily energy expenditure. From there, you'll make a reduction and you'll end up in a caloric deficit. So there are many different formulas used for that. One of the most frequent ones would be the Harris-Benedict formula. So you can either look up a calculator calculator that does it for you automatically, or you can do the Harris-Benedict calculation yourself to get a rough approximation of your starting point. Now, that all sounds very technical, and one would assume that using these calculations would lead to a more precise outcome. But what we do with our clients that ends up being a lot more precise is the average and adjust method. So what we do is let's say, let's say you sign up with triage tomorrow and it's Monday, start of the week. We would have you track your calories for that first week. What we can do then is at the end of that week, we look back at your caloric intake throughout the week, um, or maybe it's two weeks, a week or two. We look at your caloric intake throughout that period of time. And then what we do is we say, right, is this how you've normally been eating? Because that's a really important consideration. If someone comes on board and they're immediately reducing their caloric intake, then I'm not getting an idea of how they normally eat. But regardless, like usually what happens is if someone starts tracking, they become more aware of their food intake. So, oh, all of a sudden they start stop eating as much because you're more aware of it. Oh, I have to track this in an app rather than having this like spoonful of your, your child's food or whatever. You're like, oh, I have to track that. So I'm not going to. So even just the act of tracking itself usually leads to spontaneous reductions in calories you know so there's this is not foolproof we're not saying this average and adjust method is foolproof as well but as gary's going to go on there are some ways for us to understand how to then adjust 
Yeah, because even if you do start that process of tracking, what we can then see is, right, how did your body weight change during that period of time? And to be fair, there are other things that might have changed that modified your body weight. But generally, if it's significant difference from your actual maintenance level of calories, we will see some change in that direction. So for example, let's say that someone has consumed 2,500 calories on that week when we look at the average. So we take all their days, there might be some higher days, some lower days, we average it out, we get their average caloric intake. Then what we do is we look at how their body weight changed during that period of time. So if the body weight stay the exact same, what we'll do is assume that maintenance is somewhere in and around that 2,500 calorie level. It mightn't be, but it's it's going to be roughly, excuse me, it's going to be roughly around there somewhere. It might be 2,400, might be 2,600, maybe 2,700. We're roughly going to be somewhere around 2,500 given that person's average activity levels and the rough food choices that they made on that week. So we start there and we say, right, if we want you to be in a deficit, why don't we go with 2,300 or 2,200 for this first week of the official guidelines for your nutrition? And then again, we see, right, how did body weight change at that? It might be that now we've noticed a 0.3 kilo difference in body weight across the week when we look at the averages comparing weeks. And now we have an idea as to what the person's caloric requirements are. So that for us is the most practical method of trying to assess what the level of calories that you need is. Because that's a, it's a very individual in that we're actually looking at what you eat. We look at how you respond to it rather than just saying, oh, here's an equation from online. Because if you've spent, you know, more than a week in the fitness industry, you'll see that people of, this, of similar body weights often end up consuming vastly different calories, even with seemingly similar levels of activity. And we know that there are individual variables in terms of um, how much non-exercise activity thermogenesis people express, how much people adapt to caloric surpluses or deficits. So there are other variables but that aren't encompassed within that simple calculator. And if we use this average, adjust, average and adjust method, we can start to at least get some insight into some of those factors at play. Yeah, 100%. And again, all we're trying to do initially is find the level of calories that are appropriate for you. So that's what we just need to get into our head. Like we're not trying to, you know, fucking, I don't know, launch a, a nuke into space or something. We're like, this is not really complex. All we're trying to do is get a, a, an initial number, right? So we get an initial number. We take into account that it's not going to be perfect. Cause I know a lot of people want to be like, well, what's the exact, what's absolutely perfect. We, we there's no way for us to actually do that it's you know it's irrelevant so we're just trying to get uh, an in and around number okay like Ari said it's 2500 2500 calories that's where it seems to be in and around your maintenance level of calories which is the amount of calories that are going to keep you in and around the level of body weight that you're at at the moment right from there depending on our goals we can either stay at that i'll do that sometimes with some of my clients we're like okay we're just going to eat at maintenance for the next two weeks and really just, you know, optimize our diet here. Let's make some better choices. Let's really tidy up the diet in whatever way we need to. We can do that. Or if we're like, look, we're actually really going in for some fat loss. We can make a small deficit. We can, you know, make a small uh, removal of calories from that. Maybe it's 200, maybe it's 300. We're not going in straight out the bat or straight out the gate going like, let's just drop off a thousand calories. You're going to be eating 1500. Cause I know that's what everyone does. They're like, Oh, I need to, I need to be eating as little as possible. I need to feel hungry every single day. And that's just not a a productive way to diet because all that leads to, and every single person that has done it will attest to this, 
they'll go, oh yeah, I'll drop off a thousand calories from this theoretical maintenance or even like worked out maintenance. They'll go to 1500 calories. They do that for four days and they're like, man, I'm absolutely starving. On the fifth day then they're like, no, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to eat a fucking load of food. They end up eating like 3000 calories. Let's say it's, you know, relatively restrained, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I eat like 3000 calories and then it's, it's Friday. Uh, so, you know, I'll start again on Monday. So Saturday, Sunday, all of a sudden they're eating another two days of 3000, 4000 calories, you know? And it's like, look, if we average out your week, then all of a sudden your average is up at 3000 when we know you're maintenance level is 2500 so you know you've actually put yourself into a surplus and this is why people will say it all the time they go oh like calorie counting just didn't work for me but it's not actually the method it's the way you employed that that tool you know the, the tool works you know the, the tool of calorie counting the calorie tracking etc it works you know but the way you employed it the way you used it was not the right way you know, so there's better and worse ways to actually apply this stuff. So we're very big advocates of just small changes in calories because that's all we need. We're just trying to encourage the body to you know, lose fat or encourage the body to gain muscle. We're not trying to force it. Right. And um, because that generally doesn't work out great for the individual. Right. So that's what we're doing with the diet. We're just making a small change. Again, if it's 2,500 calories, we're going down by 200 calories, you know, but either way, we now have an idea of where calories are at or where they should be at given our goals. And from there, again, we're not making any big swings up, not making any big swings down. We now have a way to just figure out, okay, this is the amount of calories I need to maintain my body weight, to you know keep myself in a position where I'm well fueled, right? Now, from there, there are better ways better and worse ways to organize the rest of the diet. But let's assume, right, everyone, we're on the same page here now with calories. We have two methods of finding out how many calories we need. We can just pop the stuff into a calculator, body weight, body fat, activity, et cetera, and it'll spit out a number. And that may or may not be perfect for you. It may or may, or may not be like in and around what you need. So what we generally do is we'll use what we call the average and adjust method. We'll just track what you're eating. We'll just see what you're currently doing, do that for a week or two, and then see how your body weight changes. Get the average of that, gets, okay, you, you were eating X amount of calories and that was actually leading to a loss in uh, body weight. Okay, we know where you know potentially maintenance is supposed to be. If you lost two kilos in the two weeks that you were doing it, we're like, okay, you know, we're probably in a relatively aggressive deficit here, you know, whatever, right? So we have a way of figuring it out. If you want to be absolutely on the ball with this stuff, just do both. Get an idea of where this calculator says your calories should be, and then just track calories and macros and all that kind of stuff for two weeks and then see where it, it actually ends up, right? And then you can kind of compare the two and say, oh, well, this calculator told me I should be on 2,700 and the average and adjust method here is saying I'm on actually 2,500. Is there a discrepancy? Like what's going on here? Maybe you have a lower activity level than you think you do. Maybe you have less muscle mass than you think you do because some of these require you to put in your body fat and like some of these calculators, I should say. And it's very hard to actually figure out what your body fat level actually is. So you might realize that, oh, actually I have more body fat than I thought I did, you know? Or conversely, you might be like, oh yeah, I'm definitely... 20% body fat and you're actually way more muscular than you think you are. That's a rarer thing to actually happen. Yeah. But 
Yeah, <laughs> but it might. Right? Um, so we have an idea. Calories, cool, fantastic. We know in and around where they should be at. And like Gary said earlier on, this doesn't mean that we need to track calories for the rest of our life. This does not mean that we actually need to stay on top of, oh, I need to be eating 2,500 calories. So that means I need to be obsessive about using an app and you know calculating this stuff every single day, tracking absolutely everything I eat. That's not required. It's a great learning tool. It's a great learning experience to do that for a period of time. So you really get to know what 2,500 calories actually looks like. This is what we get all the time when we get clients on board that maybe have never tracked calories before. They're like, Jesus, I didn't know that this was actually about like 600 calories, this meal or this whatever, or this food or whatever. I'm going to be much more careful about integrating that into my diet in future, I'm much more aware about integrating that into my diet in future, you know? Um, because again, you think about fat gain the way most people do it in, in the Western world, at least it accumulates over years. It's not like this is just happening over the period of months. For sure, some people are going to gain a lot of weight over a period of months, but most people, they're accumulating fat over years. You know, it's like, oh, well, I used to be, you know, whatever, 15% body fat. I was in this like healthy body fat range. And then five, 10 years later, they're like, oh, actually now I'm 30% body fat. It's not like that just happened in the first year. It happened over those 10 years. So most people are not over consuming calories, like in a huge excess, they're doing it in like small increments. What will happen is like, oh, on the weekend, I'm in a thousand calorie surplus, but the rest of the week I'm in and around maintenance, you know? So basically for that entire week, they've only eaten a thousand calories extra, which is a relatively small amount when you average it over seven days you know? Um, and this is what kind of happens. People will have like special events or, you know, the weekends are usually when people overconsume food. And um, so they'll have periods of higher calories, but the rest of the diet might be in around maintenance or maybe even in a deficit some of the days, you know? Um, but either way, we now have an idea of where our calories should be at. And then from there, we can do a lot of stuff with the rest of the diet, right? So Gary, do you have anything else to say on calories? No, sir. And if not, what's the next thing that we should be focusing on because i hear this word macros what, what, what's that yeah so when we talk about macronutrients we're primarily talking about protein fats and carbohydrates okay we can broaden that to add some additional targets we might talk about fiber as a subcategory of car carbohydrates some people might have a significant contribution from alcohol we hope not but uh, that would also fit in as a, a macronutrient for the most part we're talking about protein fats and carbohydrates and each of these individual categories have a different caloric contribution. And even within the categories of, you know, protein or fats or carbohydrates, the specific caloric value of a, a given carbohydrate or fat in a type of food, given the overall food matrix might be different, but going to that level of granularity doesn't actually help you. It just ends up adding unnecessary tracking variables. So for the most part, what we consider is that protein is four calories per gram carbohydrates is also four calories per gram and then fat comes in at about nine calories per gram and we have targets for each of these respective macronutrients and we kind of start in terms of the hierarchy of importance and firstly what we always do is once we've set calories for someone we'll set a protein target and this protein target is based on someone's body weight it can excuse me it can also be further individualized based on body fat levels so for example 
if you're a hundred kilo bodybuilder at 6% body fat, that's very different to being a hundred kilos with 40% body fat in terms of the actual requirement of dietary protein. But for the most part, what we do is we say somewhere between maybe 1.5 to 2.5 grams of protein per kilo of body weight is a decent range for people. The lower your calorie intake and i.e. the less anabolic potential that energy has um, and the more catabolic you will be from an energy uh, point of view, the higher we set your protein target. So basically, if you're in a deficit, then you generally will benefit more from higher protein intake. Whereas if you're in a surplus, you've already got some of the um, anabolic factors and less catabolic factors from having extra energy in place. So you don't require the same uh, degree of protein intake. Now, that's still a fairly small difference, like 1.5 grams to 2.5 grams per kilo will satisfy most people. We might say 1.5 to 2 grams if you're in a surplus, 2 to 2.5, or maybe even 3 in some cases if you're in a deficit. But that's the broad range. And what that looks like in practice would be, let's say I go for 2 grams per kilo, which is a sound place for most people to be in. And I'm, let's say, 80 kilos body weight. That's 160 grams of protein per day. And then what I would do is spread that across maybe three to four meals per day. So you're coming in at maybe four meals of 40 grams of protein per day. And that gives me my target of 160 grams. So it does scale with body weight in that obviously if you're if you've got a very high level of muscle mass, you require a higher level of protein um, to deal with that level of protein turnover and to uh, maximize muscle protein synthesis. If you're a very small individual, you're only 50 kilos, you're not going to benefit from 300 grams of protein per day because once you've got your needs taken care of, you're basically just going to end up taking that extra protein and converting it to glucose for energy. And it's just a relatively inefficient process rather than just consuming extra carbohydrate instead. So more protein is not necessarily better once you're within this range, but we do recommend that you try to get within that range, regardless of your goal. If it's, even if you don't want to build muscle, you just want to lose some body fat or you just want to be healthy. Having a high protein diet is still of benefit because we know that higher protein intakes are good for things like blood glucose regulation, um, good for uh, keeping you full throughout the day, uh, good for sustaining your bone mass, sustaining your muscle mass in the presence of a deficit. So there's a lot more to protein than just muscle building. Um, and it's generally a good practice to have a high protein intake uh, in the context of your overall diet. Yeah. And most people are just not consuming enough protein. You look at the average individual, like most people are consuming maybe one serving of protein per day. Like they'll have their dinner, their evening meal. They're like, oh yeah, like I'll have a chicken breast or something, some sort of meat with that meal. And maybe at their lunch, they might have like slice of cheese or something in a sandwich or something but like most people are just vastly under consuming protein most people are really over consuming carbohydrates and fats like you look at someone's diet and like i've seen people's diets that are just you are eating like 30 grams of protein per day on a 3000 calorie diet and the rest of it's just coming from carbohydrates and fats you know and like that's you might think oh if you're listening to this from the health and fitness world you might be like jesus Christ, how is someone eating like that but it's very possible, especially in the modern world. Like most people are not encouraged to eat protein. Like they're, and I say encouraged, obviously like you'll see stuff on the media and you'll see stuff on like packaging and all that kind of stuff. But like in terms of the way people set up their diets, like the way people are taught to eat for, as a child, et cetera, like they're not taught to actually eat more protein, you know, like people will legitimately just think like, oh yeah, like I had like a bowl of cereal, like that's, 
uh, a wholesome like a bowl of cereal and a, a glass of orange juice and they're like that's a wholesome you know breakfast and you look at it and you're like this has like five grams maybe of protein you know <laughs> it's like this is just 99% of this meal is just carbohydrates <laughs> you know and it's like this is not a, a well-balanced meal but that's the way a lot of us are taught like I remember growing up like I literally breakfast was like cereal and milk like that was it you know you're like, out the door see you later and that's just the way people are taught to eat so a lot of people struggle with getting in enough protein because they're they don't have the the, the skills to set that up within their dietary framework. Like they just don't, they're like, Oh, how am I going to eat protein at breakfast? I don't have, I've never eaten that. And invariably they have, like, you'll have someone like, Oh, have you had eggs for breakfast? Have you had like eggs on toast? Have you had like a, I don't know, like Greek yogurt and some berries and nuts or whatever. Like people have eaten high protein breakfasts. So this is something that we would do as a coach. We would go, okay, cool. You're struggling with getting enough protein at breakfast, like you're, you're able to get some at lunch because that's usually a little bit easier. People are like, okay, I can do some things. I can try to get more meat or some, you know, plant-based proteins at lunch, same with dinner. Like I can just rejig, like, okay, I have to add a little bit more chicken breast to my curry or whatever. Like it's relatively easier to get stuff or get more protein at lunch and dinner. But for breakfast, that's where a lot of people struggle. So as a coach, that's where we'll start coming up with like specific interventions going like, okay, can you try this? Can you try this? Can you try that? And then come up with some sort of solution so that you can actually get enough protein in on a meal per meal basis. And this is the thing that when we're talking about the theoretical, like, oh, you need to consume, let's just put it at two grams per kilo. You know, like that's, that's where you need to be. That's the, that's the, the level of protein. We're just give a blanket statement, right? And like, that's where you need to be. Um, what that actually translates to as an individual like what you actually care about is how you set up your meals, how you set up, how you structure your diet, right? And like Gary said, that might be, okay, I need to consume, you know, four servings of roughly 40 grams of protein spread throughout the day. That's fine. Again, we're just throwing out numbers. But what does that actually look like for you on a meal per meal basis? How are you going to set up your diet to actually accomplish that? Because we don't want to do this. And this is what everyone does when they go, oh, I'll track calories and macros. Like, they don't actually sit, spend any time figuring out how to set up their diet, right? Like we can give you the numbers, but you actually have to translate that into the specifics of what you're going to eat because as an individual, you're not eating numbers, you're eating foods. So what does that look like for you on a given day? Because what you'll often see, and you see this, especially with uh, younger guys that are trying to like bulk up, they'll go, oh, I need to consume 200 grams of protein. And they basically won't plan out their diet at all. They'll eat normally. They'll go, oh, I'll eat my breakfast normally. I'll eat my lunch normally. And like, you know, they're maybe on 20 grams total of protein by the time it's dinner time. And then they're like, oh, fuck, like I have to consume 180 grams of protein in this meal. And then they're like, oh, I'm always so full. I can't eat enough. I can't hit these calories. But the reason they can't hit those calories is because they haven't planned out their meals. You know, they haven't actually sat down and gone, how am I going to structure my diet to get this? And again, we're not talking about being like hyper anal with this stuff and going, you know, I need to like, you know, I need to have 37.5 grams of protein at this meal. And, you know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about having a rough plan of action. How are you actually going to implement this stuff? Like, how are you going to get protein at breakfast? How are you going to get it at your lunch? How are you going to get it at your dinner? Maybe you need to have another feeding of protein. Are you going to do that uh, as a snack throughout the day? Like, are you going to do it like after work in the evening time? Like you actually have to sit down and plan out this stuff. 
right? Um, but yeah, protein, I don't have anything else to say. Get roughly two grams, like anywhere in that kind of 1.5 to 2.5 grams per kilo, you're pretty good to go. We can talk about like specific situations where more or less are needed, but realistically, once you're in that range, you're pretty good to go. So unless you've anything else to say on protein, what's the next thing we need to consider? Yeah, let me just quickly say one thing on protein, because I think um, sometimes people assume that, uh, you know, or, or they try to they try to put individual macronutrients into their different categories and don't actually look at how they might get more protein from their carbohydrate source, for example. And a classic old Irish breakfast that many of us would have been given as kids and would have turned our nose up at would have been porridge with milk, you know, a bowl of porridge, let's see, 100 grams of oats, and maybe you have 300 mils of low fat milk in there. If you're having that, you're getting about maybe 10 grams of protein from the milk, you're getting about 14, maybe 15 grams of protein from the porridge. So you're already at 25 grams. So it's actually not, not that complicated. Like if you added another tablespoon of peanut butter or some nuts, you don't even need one of these like elaborate protein sources. Maybe you don't like whey protein. Maybe you don't like eggs. It's perfectly fine to just have these very basic foods and still try to, you know, just jig your diet, rejig your diet just a little bit to bump up the protein content. So for Especially example, on that, like the milk and stuff, like you can get high protein milk. Yeah, You can get even more high protein milk. Easy. So easy. And also as a, you know, historical context, whey and protein or whey and oats is actually a, a traditional irish meal just in case anyone is wondering going like you get your mother or your father going oh why are you adding that powder or whatever to your to your oats that whey protein i'm like that is literally what people were doing in ireland a thousand years ago so it's traditional that's why we're all so jacked exactly <laughs> uh but yeah look do do look at those things because there's actually so many different ways you can bump up the protein content of your diet in a very easy manner particularly important for our plant-based comrades. Like for example, if you're consuming, let's say, you know, those Uncle Ben's pre-made packets of rice that people put in the microwave. I always shop in Little Aldi and they have all these different variations of like lentils and grains and all this type of stuff. And some of those like lentil packets that have added beans and stuff, you might be getting 15 to 20 grams of protein for that packet. And you're looking at that saying, this is just a carbohydrate source, you know, here I'm adding this for my carbs or I'm adding this for my fiber. And that's one of the things we always say to people as well, because some people, especially like bodybuilders, they'll track their protein intake, but they won't do it on my, my fitness pal. So they'll just say, if I want, if I need 40 grams of protein at a meal, I'm going to have the amount of chicken that gives me 40 grams of protein, or I'm going to have the amount of eggs that gives me 40 grams of protein. But alongside that, they might have oats with milk they might have peanut butter they have all this extra protein that's coming from their plant-based foods that they're not actually tracking so have a look at my fitness pal see what's contributing and this also becomes a very important discussion when we start to talk about things like fiber for example so with that said moving on to fat then fat is actually sorry just before you go on to that this is one of those things as well like when you're trying to gain weight you know, like you're trying to put yourself into a surplus, like people will start pushing carbohydrates. They'll start eating more rice, for example. Like if you're not tracking protein from all these different sources, like you can end up in a situation where you are getting a huge amount of protein. Like you can imagine, like, let's say you're up to like, you have to consume 500 grams of rice per day, which is not unheard of in the bodybuilding world, you know, and it's like really pushing calories, really pushing expenditure, whatever. Like that's a fuckload of protein just from rice, you know? And this is one of those things where like theoretically it makes sense that you need to consume less protein when you're in a calorie surplus. But practically speaking, 
we might still just keep your protein intake high. We might even increase it purely by virtue or to account for the fact that you're going to be getting a lot of protein from these plant-based sources or carbohydrates or whatever, and they might not be whole or the full spectrum of amino acids that we need to get. So you might be like, okay, I'm technically getting a lower quality protein source here. So I'm actually just going to increase my protein, you know, target to account for that. Now, again, that's getting into the nitty gritty of it, something that we might do with coaching a specific individual, but I just wanted to bring it to the fore there just so people are understand that, you know, if you are pushing calories and you're eating a lot of carbohydrates or whatever, protein can actually be very, very easy to overconsume. Facts. Um, and yeah, I've been there, you know, I, I used to do that very early on in my, um, training career learning from bodybuilders and stuff consuming 300 grams plus of protein per day and you know it works well it's very it regulates your calorie intake well if you if half your plate is protein like you're not hungry after that you're going to be pretty full uh but ultimately it's unnecessary and there are better ways to set up your diet so when it comes to fat then fat actually doesn't have a very clear recommendation because it's it's almost like we're kind of making inferences as to why we might need a certain uh, level of fat in the diet. So for example, if we go too low, we know that vitamins A, D, E, and K, the fat-soluble vitamins, if you look at their rates of absorption, they're impacted by the quantity of fat that's consumed with a meal. So maybe you're having breakfast, let's say, and you're taking your vitamin D tablets, you've been told that they're really important, um, and your absorption might be poorer because you don't have any fat in that meal, for example. So there, we start to make inferences as to why it might be important to reach a certain threshold. We also know that, you know, dietary fat is, you know, contributing to things like the synthesis of various hormones in the body. Um, it's also going to contribute to your essential fatty acid intake. So there are these effects that fat is going to have when consumed, but it's just not so clear what the lower level is and what it is because theoretically you can make the case that there's basically no lower level like if you're very particular about like supplementing with the you know essential fatty acids and you know maybe you're very specific with your tracking the nutrients that you might get from fat rich foods then yeah you, you might be able to get away with 10 20 grams of fat per day and, and be just fine but for practical considerations we like to keep fat generally above 0.6 grams per kilo of body weight because what we find is that having this level of intake it gives someone enough flexibility in their protein and carbohydrate sources first and foremost because if you start to go to let's say 20 30 grams of fat per day suddenly very difficult to eat red meat very difficult to eat salmon very difficult difficult to eat eggs to get any nuts in your diet etc all these foods you're restricted from and that's then limiting the intake of some of the micronutrients that might be present in those foods, along with the essential fatty acids, for example, um, or some of the omega-3 fatty acids that we might get from, you know, salmon, for example. So there are these practical considerations that become limited at very low intakes. So around 0.6 grams per kilo of body weight seems to be a decent level. We generally try to say, stay between 0.6 to 1 gram per kilo, maybe up to 1.2 to 1.5 if someone is in a very large surplus, but typically we try not to go much higher than that because you will find that you run into at the very least some um, gastrointestinal upset. If you're uh, having a very high fat intake, um, if you go up to, let's say two, three grams per kilogram of body weight, 
suddenly your gut transit time is going to be slowed down, takes a lot of time for your food to be digested. You're going to notice differences in stool frequency and composition. It's just, it's, it just starts to mess things up a little bit. Okay. Um, so we don't tend to go too high. We also run into the issue that even if you're not consuming very saturated fat rich foods, the higher your absolute fat intake, like if it's two, 300 grams, it's very, very easy to consume so much saturated fat from non-saturated fat rich foods that suddenly you're well above the threshold that we recommend for reduction of cardiovascular disease risk. So for most people, we recommend that saturated fat intake should be less than 10% of your total caloric intake. Um, so for example, if you're consuming 3000 calories per day, um, or let's just say 2,700, cause it's easier, 2,700 calories uh, per day, 10% of your calories is 270. That's 30 grams of saturated fat per day. Um, so you want to be less than that for minimizing risk of cardiovascular disease. People are going to differ in their susceptibility to respond to saturated fat in terms of its effects on increasing ApoB or LDL cholesterol. And some people will be more sensitive. So if you already have a higher baseline risk of cardiovascular disease, for example, through your current uh, blood lipids, family history, um, et cetera, then you might want to be more aggressive with trying to keep that saturated fat low. If you're in a position where you're lean, you're healthy, your LDL is already low, um, and it doesn't seem to respond that much to increases in saturated fat, and you're currently consuming 12 to 15% of your calories from saturated fat, like clearly you're not as sensitive to the mechanism by which this would cause harm. So I would just, you know, continue eating as normal and maybe check back in, uh, a few years as to what your LDL is. If it has responded by increasing, you can then make that reduction. But uh, for the most part, 10% seems to be that threshold. So 0.6 grams per kilo of body weight, limiting saturated fat to less than 10% of calories, and then you're in a good place. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Again, I think once you get over the one gram per kilo of fat per you know in your diet um i think most people start running into issues now once you get below let's say 0.5 people run into different issues below 0.5 it starts making food choices very hard right just on a practical basis over one gram you're almost adding fat to the diet just to add fat you know it's like you're using oh i'm using more olive oil just to add calories which isn't bad especially if you're really trying to to gain weight but even then like fat is probably the least effective macronutrient in terms of building muscle in terms of you know increasing performance maybe if you're really fat adapted and you're really like going for like endurance training we could make some sort of argument there um but for most people they're probably going to get more bang for their book by having a higher carbohydrate intake you know and the thing that only really modifies my fat recommendations outside of that 0.6 grams uh, per kilo is personal preference. Like I've had clients that are just like, I just like eating fattier foods, or I just like setting up my diet like this. Like, okay, cool. We'll, we'll take that into account and we'll increase the fat, you know? And conversely, if I have clients that are just like, I just don't really like consuming fat and maybe they're down at like 0.3 I might be like, okay, well, actually we would probably do better with a little bit more fat in in that case, you know, and I'm not going to try like really just like double it overnight. I'm going like, oh yeah, you were at 0.3 grams per kilo. We're going to go to 0.6, but 
but I might start encouraging small changes in the diet. Like, okay, can we add some olive oil here? Can we choose like a slightly fattier cut of meat? Like, are you getting any red meat in your diet, for example, or any fatty fish? And um, so we might make small changes there to just get a little bit of a higher fat intake. Um, but again, we do have to take into account personal preference. But anyway, so we've set protein. We know we're consuming roughly two grams. We've now set our fat. We've got 0.6 grams per kilo. <coughs> How do we set our carbohydrates? Because that's the only one that's really left in the, the, the major macronutrients. Yeah. So when it comes to carbohydrates, there's actually not a strict recommendation here in that it ends up being um, dependent on your overall caloric intake and the targets that we've set previously. So when we look at carbohydrate, like carbohydrates are theoretically non-essential, but that's just if you're looking at your goal as being just staying alive <laughs> that's not why we eat we're like we're, we're not making these recommendations just so you don't die we're making these recommendations so you can optimize your health optimize your performance optimize your body composition that's where what we're looking for here so when it comes to carbohydrate intake technically you don't need any but practically you do because we need fiber intake we need all the nutrients and phytonutrients that we can get from carbohydrate based foods and we need the energy content from carbohydrates to be able to sustain high performance so just even on that like it's actually a bit of a misnomer to even just suggest that like carbohydrates aren't essential like for the body they're so essential that it's actually like literally going to go okay you've given me protein you've given me fat i i need carbohydrates so i'm going to make carbohydrates like your red blood cells good luck using red blood cells without carbohydrates like it's not going to happen you know like you need glycolysis to occur so you need carbohydrates so your body's going to go i need carbohydrates i need glucose so i'm going to use the other stuff that you're giving me and i'm going to make glucose so to say that it's not essential it, it it's it's incorrect it's correct from a nutritional like biochemistry point of view but it's incorrect from an actual like dietary viewpoint you know it's incorrect to think that oh they're not essential for life you know they're not essential you know for the body that's not true from the perspective of oh i do i need to consume carbohydrates in the diet technically no like your body's going to make them if you need if you don't consume them but to say they're non-essential in reality, it only applies to dietary intake, right? And this is one of those things that really fucking like it actually annoys uh, like people that are like uh, really like keto uh, or like carnivore or whatever. Like they're always like, oh yeah, like I, my body doesn't run on carbohydrates. I don't fuel with carbohydrates. And it's like, no, like your body's literally using carbohydrates. It's transforming that protein that you've eaten into carbohydrates. Like there's no way absolutely no way to not use carbohydrates for fuel you know facts <laughs> uh so yeah you do need carbohydrates and it's it's just a bit of a misnomer to, to say that you don't okay there are some cases in which like a, a very very low carbohydrate diet genuinely is best for example in some cases of epilepsy uh, where a ketogenic diet legitimately can be life-changing for some people um but that's basic more or less none of you a very very small percentage of you um so as we said carbohydrates account for four calories per gram and typically what we say is allocate the rest of your calories once you've completed the previous calculations to carbohydrates so for example let's say we've got um 
100 kilo individual, uh, 3000 calorie intake, then what we're going to do is we're going to say, right, let's go two grams per kilo, 200 grams of protein per day is consumed. That's 800 calories gone. Okay. Then we're going to go with fast. Let's say we're just going one gram per kilo. That's 900 calories gone. Now we've got 1300 calories remaining to be able to allocate to carbohydrates. So we divide that by four and it comes in at 325 grams of carbohydrates per day. So that's going to be the intake that we aim for. Um, and again, that's just a very basic calculation based on what we, how we allocated protein and fats. Um, if you were consuming 5,000 calories per day, clearly you're going to have a much higher carbohydrate intake that results from that. Um, and and then, then you might do from there, regardless of the total, we just go, what are you currently eating? What is your current diet like? What are your current preferences? Oh, you don't like eating that much carbohydrates? Okay, you like you prefer eating more fats? Okay, we can start modifying things within that framework. Because like we said at the start, these are just theoretical numbers. We're just, they're not like picked out of our ass or picked out of the sky or whatever. It's like, no, these are what the research seems to suggest is quote unquote optimal, but we're still going to look at the real world, what you actually need to consume and what you want to consume. Now, some of those are going to have a little bit of a, a harder uh like you have to stay within this like we're not going to go oh well like look your preference is to consume all of your fat from saturated fat like okay that might be your preference but it's probably not best for your health so we're probably going to try to change that we're probably going to try to modify that same with if you're like oh like i just i don't like consuming protein like we're not going to go oh yeah so just consume like 0.5 grams like we're not going to do that we're going to go okay let's just keep it at the very low end. Let's go to 1.5. Like, can we do 1.2? Okay. You know, it's not within our quote unquote optimal range, but at least we're getting a, a decent amount, you know? So some of them are a little bit harder, whereas we can kind of mix and match between fats and carbs. We can go, okay, you want a little bit more fats. You want a little bit less carbs, or you want a little bit more carbs. You want a little bit less fats. Like we can play around with the numbers within that based on your preference. Absolutely. Um, and to be honest, there's not that much else really to say about carbohydrates other than to say that like fiber is a kind of subcomponent there. And typically what we say is that fiber is, you can, you can look at it in a number of different ways, but 10 to 15 grams per thousand calories is a reasonable recommendation. Most people, we want them to be between 25 to 45 grams of fiber per day. Uh, we don't always stick with the 10 to 15 grams per thousand calorie recommendation. You know, we have some clients who work with us and, you know, they're, they might have IBS or they previously had a very low fiber intake. We need to titrate up gradually. So it does depend on what you're used to. Some people are adapted to consuming 80 to 100 grams of fiber per day with no issue. Um, and there does seem to be some adaptations over time in terms of, you know, your microbiome and your ability of your gut to be able to handle a given level of fiber intake. Um, so don't just go from, you know, 10 grams per day to 40 grams per day in one go. Make some gradual changes. Otherwise, you'll be very gassy and probably spending a lot of the time in the toilet. OK, so uh, do be mindful of that. Now, in terms of tracking your fiber. This can, some, this can present a, a couple of different issues. So firstly, if you're using MyFitnessPal or any tracking app, um, MyFitnessPal is probably the most common one that people use, so I'll just stick with that. Uh, what you have to realize is that MyFitnessPal, a large proportion of the entries are user-driven, meaning that if me or Paddy, let's say, consume, I don't know, let's say I buy some new porridge products or protein bar or something in the shop, and it's not on my fitness pal. 
So I put it into my fitness pal and I put in the values I'm concerned about. So maybe I'm concerned about calories. I'm concerned about protein and I put in the rest of the macronutrients, but I don't put in a fiber value because I'm like, ah, yeah, it's just whatever. So I put that in. Now, everyone that uses the entry for that protein bar from here forward, they won't get that fiber value accounted within their total uh, macronutrient intake for the day. So have a look when you're putting in these entries into the app. Is there a fiber value being put in for this? Obviously, if it's chicken or steak, doesn't matter. But if it's a protein bar that clearly has a significant amount of fiber or it's another granola bar or cereal that you're consuming and there's not a fiber value for that, then your fiber intake is probably higher than is reflected. Now, the other thing that comes up very frequently is people not tracking veg vegetables and sometimes even fruits and vegetables. So they'll track all their other foods, but they're not tracking these fruits and vegetables. So they think their fiber is really low, but in fact, they have, they're getting a lot of fiber coming from those other plant foods that simply isn't being tracked. So we recommend at least for a period of time, track everything that passes your lips within reason, like coffee, water, fine. But everything that comes uh, into your mouth that's being eaten is being tracked. So that includes your spinach. <laughs> it includes your blueberries. It includes the handful of grapes that you had. What this allows you to do is get an accurate assessment, even if it's just for two weeks, of what you're genuinely consuming. And if let's say there's 10 grams of fiber coming from vegetables and you eat that amount of vegetables every single day, then no, you don't have to keep tracking that, but you have to at least make a mental note that there's an extra 10 grams of fiber that I'm consuming that isn't reflected in the app. So if I reach 20 grams and my target is 30, I've hit my target for the day. So just keep those considerations in mind. Now, to be fair, most people aren't over consuming fiber. Most people are under consuming fiber. Um, so even just tracking everything will give you an idea as to how much under you are. And then you can start to make some of those changes in your diet. Yeah, I genuinely find most people under consume fiber. Like yeah. a lot of people do this thing, like you're saying, where they go, oh, I just don't track like fruits and veg. It's cool. Like I do consume them. But then when you actually get them to track, you're like, you're literally getting like five grams of fiber. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, you consume some fruits and veg, but you're literally eating like a lettuce leaf and calling that your, your veg intake, you know? And that's unfortunately what a lot of people do. And then you have fitness individuals out there going, oh yeah, like you don't need to track your uh, fruits and veg. Like nobody ever got fat eating vegetables. And well, that's not a bad sentiment, that only they're only able to say that because they've spent some time actually educating themselves on like how much veg they need to actually consume. And they're doing stuff like eating 200, 300 grams of veg with each of their meals. You know, like if you haven't spent that time actually understanding how much veg you need to eat to get, you know, let's 10 to 15 grams uh, of fiber per thousand calories, you're going to assume you're good to go because you're like, Oh, well, I ate some veg, you know? we find it much better to just set a fiber target, go, okay, you need to consume, let's just put it at 30 grams of fiber and then get people to try to hit that by choosing certain amounts of vegetables, you know, being like, okay, look, you need to consume a bit more vegetables. You're not hitting your, your fiber target. You're always at 20. And again, there might be some modifying factors like based on the entries that they're using, it might not actually be tracking their veg or sorry, their fiber or whatever. Um, and that's cool. We're going to look at that but most people just under consume vegetables, you know? Um, and people make this argument all the time being like, oh, well, if you have to track your like uh, vegetables, people then don't want to track their vegetables. They don't want to eat their vegetables because it's taking away like 
grams from their carbohydrates. And yeah, okay, that's understandable, but we need we need to know where we're actually at, you know? We need to then set a fiber goal. Like it's not like you can just hit your carbohydrate goal and not hit your fiber goal. You know, if that starts happening, then we're going, okay, you're making choices that are just prioritizing like starchier carbohydrates at the expense of eating vegetables. So yeah, I understand that you want and you enjoy these starchy carbohydrates, like you like bread and pasta and all that kind of stuff, but we need to consume more vegetables. We need to consume more fiber. So we need to come up with solutions for that, you know? Um, so in our experience, at least for a period of time, you need to know what it actually looks like on your plate, on your day's intake. You need to know what it looks like to consume 10 to 15 grams per thousand calories, you know? And once you know that, yeah, we can kind of start weaning off actually tracking this stuff and we can just make a mental note, like Gary said, of going, okay, that's, you know, there's, there's 10 grams of fiber in this, or, you know, I'm like, for me, for example, like I probably consume about 800 calories per day from just vegetables, you know? So I could just not track that because it's fairly standardized across my days. And so I could just not track that. Um, But then I'm going to actually make choices or make calorie decisions based on the fact that there's 800 calories here that I'm not tracking, you know, and I'm a bit of an outlier. Like I eat a lot of veg and I know you do as well, Gary. Um, maybe that's not the case for a lot of people, but if you're not tracking your veg, like you could easily be consuming 200, 400 calories from that. And you can be wondering going, Oh, well, how come I'm not losing weight? Like this calorie tracking app or whatever is telling me that I should be eating 2,500 and I've been eating 2,500 and my maintenance is at 2,700 but you're not tracking veg and you're actually consuming an extra 200 calories from veg, you know? So just because you don't track it doesn't mean that it's not tracked. Like your body is still keeping track. Like it's still keeping track of the energy contributions. And so we just find, again, we're going to use tracking to make better food choices so that we understand what the diet should look like, because ultimately, and I think this is the case for the vast majority of people, we don't want them tracking for the rest of their life. We don't want them having to use an app to go, oh, well, how much should I consume here? Or what about this? And blah, blah, blah. Like, I want you to understand what that looks like. I want you to know what 2,500 calories looks like for you across your day. I want you to know what 3,000 calories looks like. I want you to know what 2,000 calories looks like. I want you to know what it looks like so that you don't need to use an app. Because then we can do something where we start weaning you off using the app and you're actually able to eat 2,500 calories without actually having to track it using an app. And that's where we want to get to, you know, for, for the vast majority of people as well, or for, I should say. Um, but to do that, we can't just look at all the numbers. So we set the numbers, right? To do that, to put that into play, to put that into practice, to actually like evolve past just tracking these numbers, we need to do something further to that. So we've looked at the, the quantity aspect of the diet, what we need to look at now is the, the quality aspect of the diet. So how do we translate those numbers into an actual diet, Gary? Yeah, so the, the, there are better and worse food choices. That's the first point, okay? It's not wise to just look at the quantitative aspects of nutrition in terms of your calories and macronutrients, for example, and say that that's the end of the story. Because number one, the overall micronutrient content of the diet matters for sure. But number two, the way that you're best able to adhere to a diet that hits the quantitative aspects, your calories and macros, 
is by eating better foods. Okay. And what that looks like is you can very simply say, you know, just eat real food. Like that's one way of saying it. Now, some people will say, oh, well, what constitutes a real food? You know, there's no way of defining that. But I mean, like zoom out and take your nerd cap off for, off for a minute and say, right, if you were to ask your, your grandmother, you know, what's, what are, what are healthy foods? You know, they're probably going to say like, oh, you know, home cooked meals, you know, fresh ingredients, you know, the fruits and vegetables from the garden or whatever it happens to be. And, and there's, there's truth in all of that. It's that it's the single ingredient whole foods that are going to, that are, that should make up the vast majority of your diet. Now, of course, there are nuances in terms of the modern food environment and that you can get prepackaged rice made or microwavable potatoes or, you know, pre-cooked chicken. Are these things like bad for your health because they're not, you know, straight from the source? No, they're just more convenient sources. So I'd still consider those to be single ingredient foods, even if it's like rice with a bit of spices added, like big deal. Ultimately, that's what you're looking for is that you're getting as close to the kind of food in its purest form as you can. The further you move away from that, you know, you're looking at, I don't know, like the difference between, uh, you know, a plain chicken breast and Southern fried chicken goujons that you get in a freezer in the grocery store. You're talking about maybe an extra 10 grams of carbohydrates per 100 grams of chicken and an extra 15 grams of fat per 100 grams of chicken. So you're getting further and further away from the source. So start by getting as close to the source of single ingredient whole foods. And that's going to be a fantastic starting point. Okay. So you've got your lean protein sources. Um, you've got, you know, things like uh, Greek yogurt is a great, a great source of protein. You've got your eggs, you've got, you know, plant-based sources of protein that people might consume that might be processed, but are still net healthful. You know, things like tofu, I think it's disgusting, but some people like it. <laughs> some of the corn options people like, I don't really consume those foods, but there's lots of different um, plant-based foods there now, seitan, tempeh, uh, all of those are very healthful sources of protein as well. Um, and then your carbohydrates, you've got your, your potatoes, your rice, your um, roots and tubers, fruits and vegetables, um, beans, legumes, all those fit into the carbohydrate category. And then you've got your fat sources, your avocados, your nuts, um, your oil, certain oils, you know, for example, uh, canola oil or uh, olive oil. You've got uh, the fats that are going to be consumed as part of your protein sources. Um, so you've got a lot of different options there that are like just the pure single ingredient foods. And then you've got small variations thereof. So start off with just eat real food and go from there in terms of minor variations of these foods and try to stick primarily with those options. Yeah, like it's it's one of those things where it's so annoying that you can't just say, just eat real food. Like just, there you go, real, real food. Because there are so many nuances to that statement. But at the same time, I just don't want people to get too caught up in, oh, well, is this a, a real food? Or hey, this has been modified and this has been whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like we just get rid of all these ideologies, get rid of all this like excess noise, just eat human food, eat food that humans have been eating for hundreds, if not thousands of years and just get on with your life. You know, like, yeah, there's going to be some edge cases where we're like, you know what, this is, you know, maybe it falls under a more process or maybe it falls under this, like, it's not, you know, whatever, like, who cares? Just get on with your life. Forget about this stuff. Don't get too caught up on it. It does not matter. It's not a huge influence on 
your overall result, your overall diet. Like obviously if you're eating like fucking, I don't know, uranium or something like, yeah, okay. That's, that's a different case here. You know, first of all, it has lots of calories in it. Second of all, it's probably not good from a radioactivity perspective, but you know, stuff like that, like, okay, there's going to be edge cases here, but the vast majority of your, your diet should just be real food, make real food choices, get on with your life. Who cares? It literally, there's so much ideology. There's so much back and forth that it's actually just infuriating to even try to get into all the nuance of this because you have to be so careful with your words. So careful with like, well, what does real, like, what does real food mean? Like we all know, we all know what we're talking about. We're on the same page and people are just being really like semantic and really like, Oh, well, give me the exact definition. Like, where does this fit in it? And I'm like, who cares? Nobody really cares. Like is bread real food? Like, it's been processed. Like we just don't care. Right. <laughs> um, but what does that actually look like Gary on a, a plate? Like, cause that's what people eat. Like people eat real food on an, in like a, on a plate in front of them. So what would that look like for a meal? Yeah. So what I always say to people is like to view it in the same way that we kind of talked about the macronutrients previously. So start by saying, right, you know, where am I getting my protein from? You know, what's going to be the protein base of this meal? then how am I going to get my fruits and vegetables added to this meal? And this is a bit of a dynamic one where the protein is almost always fixed. Okay. The fruits or vegetables should always be there in some quantity, but the relative proportion of the kind of fruits and vegetables and then the carbohydrate and or fat source depends on the overall energy content of the diet. So if this is a very high calorie diet, we might actually have slightly less fruits and vegetables because we're trying to meet our needs, but we're not necessarily trying to maximize how full we feel after the meal. And then we're having a, you know, over half the plate of carbohydrates with added fats. Um, if someone is on a very low calorie diet, or maybe it's a meal in the day where they're not particularly hungry, we're going to have our protein source. And then we probably have most of the rest of the plate made up of, you know, their vegetables. Maybe it's a salad or it's some broccoli and carrots or whatever, um, or their fruits. And then maybe a very small proportion of the plate that's composed of the carbohydrate or fat source. So obviously that gets a bit more complicated when you're talking about mixed meals, like, I don't know, a pasta dish where everything's mixed together or a bolognese or something like that. But like, you don't need to stress too much about that. Again, if you're tracking your calories, you're sorted. If you're talking about the plate structure, protein and fruit and veg as your base is a, always a good choice. And then add in your carbohydrates and or fat sources depending on your energy needs. I think it's pretty simple. Yeah, 100%. So that's food selection. Again, we can we can spend ages, ages, absolutely ages talking about this stuff, but I just don't think it is actually worth people's time. Like, don't fall into this like, oh, good, bad categorization. Like, it really doesn't help you. You know, there's better choices for a given goal. There's better choices. There's human food, and then there's non-human food that we can still consume. But you know, make better choices. They don't always have to be perfect. You're going to have times where you might want stuff that's like, oh, this is, you know, quote unquote bad. Again, even having that frame of mind is just not helpful. We want to be in a position where we're like, okay, I'm just going to eat a diet that is supportive of my goals. And there's better ways to eat that diet. You know, that's all. There's no moralizing. There's no like, I'm a bad person because I had a plate of chips. You know, like it's just, that's not helpful, right? Anyway, moving on from food selection, the next thing we want to do is actually look at our diet in more of a 
a broader sense like how are we setting up our diet longer term like we want to actually create a timeline for what we want to achieve with the diet right and what i mean by this is we don't want to have like open-ended goals because this is what people always do when they set up their diet they're like all right i just want to lose fat and then they leave it at that there's no like i'm going to try to lose fat over the next 16 weeks or you know over to whatever it's just like i'm going to try to lose fat and that can work for a lot of people but usually it just leads to people being on a fat loss diet forever you know, they'll have like little mess ups here and there where they eat more calories. So they're like, oh, ruined that weekend. And then they feel crap and then they overconsume. And then they're like, oh, I'm back on my fat loss diet. And it's because there's no like end goal in sight. There's always like, oh, like I'm just going to always be on a fat loss diet. And you see this all the time. People that are on these like perma diets, you know, there's never a period of time where they actually learn to just maintain. They actually just eat at maintenance. They just actually eat to fuel their body. They actually eat to like, just eat a good, well-balanced, healthy diet. It's always fat loss, fat loss, fat loss. And for sure, a lot of people are going to be in a position where they want to manipulate their diet to lose some weight, right? And that can be done. But either way, when you're doing that, set a definitive end target. You're going to spend, let's just say 16 weeks. The next 16 weeks, you're going to dedicate to fat loss. And regardless of the outcome, at the end of those 16 weeks, you're going to eat at maintenance, right? And the reason we're doing that is because we actually want to have you eat at maintenance and learn to eat at maintenance because at the end of your fat loss, let's say you have a hundred kilos to lose. You're not going to lose all those hundred kilos in 16 weeks. Right. But at the end of the hundred kilos of fat loss, however far into the future that is, you're going to want to maintain that fat loss. So we have to learn how to eat at maintenance. Right. And the best way to do that is to do it. Right. You actually have to eat at maintenance. What does that look like? How do I structure my diet? And the thing about this is it's actually a really good practice in general. Let's say you have no like body composition change goals, eating at maintenance and learning how to structure your diet to maintain where you're at and just fuel your performance, fuel your health is so beneficial, right? But we want to have a period of time where we're like, okay, that's what we're actually focusing on, right? And you don't have to be again, really anal with structuring this going like, oh, well down to the exact week or whatever, but you should know over the course of a year, like the general outline of what you're doing with your diet, right? Are you eating in a surplus? Are you eating at maintenance? Are you eating in a deficit? Like, what are you actually doing, right? In these different periods of time, like it is actually so beneficial and so few people do it, right? And it's something that we do with our clients. We'll be like, right, so we're going to spend the next whatever, 10 weeks or whatever dieting. And then we're going to be at maintenance for the next six weeks. And then we're going to go into a surplus. Like, I can't emphasize how important it actually is. And so few people do it. Do you mind me saying that, Gary? No, not really. I think just, you know, planning ahead is at least it gives you an endpoint. And I think that's very important. If it's too open-ended, it's very easy to justify going off track for a period of time because you say, ah, there's next week. Ah, there's next week. Where if you only have eight weeks, well, there's not always going to be a next week. So you're kind of more motivated to just stick to it. So I think, yeah, plan in advance makes things better. And obviously there is a degree of actually learning how to plan and actually learning how to make realistic goals and stuff like that. Because, you know, a lot of people will be like, Oh, I'm going to die for the next eight weeks. And they're trying to lose two kilos per week for the next eight weeks. And obviously that isn't realistic. So again, you get better at planning this stuff. You get better at organizing your timeline with this stuff and actually making realistic goals. And this is something that we do so much in the actual coaching process. Like we're actually coaching the individual, how to coach themselves in future. 
right? Because there's going to be periods of your life where, you know, life is just busy. You're maybe going to gain fat that you were just not accounting for. You're like, oh, look, I have like exams and, you know, I'm actually having a baby and, you know, and there's the mortgage and like there's periods of your life that just get really busy and you don't have as much energy to devote to looking after your diet and maybe you gain some fat. So you have to know how to structure fat loss in future. You also have to know how to structure, oh, this is how I would maintain after that fat loss. And then you also know, have to know for, well, for a lot of people, they're going to want to know how to eat in a surplus without gaining an excessive amount of fat so that they can gain muscle, for example, or really fuel their performance in the gym or whatever it is, right? So you kind of need to know how to structure this stuff. And that's a large part of what the coaching process is, is helping someone understand this stuff longer term so that they can do it themselves forever forward, you know? Um, but anyway, yeah, look, I don't want to belabor the point. It's incredibly important, but we've talked about it a lot and we've talked about goal setting, etc. We usually do a goal setting episode at the start of the year, every year. So, you know, you've that to look forward to, or you can go back and listen to previous ones, right? Um, but to kind of wrap this up there's a little two more points that we want to touch on and the next one is gary do we need to track calories and macros because we've stated it a few times throughout the episode but most people are not going to want to track calories and macros for the rest of their life so do we need to do that to get results no we don't and we already mentioned that previously you can get to a point where you're regulating your calories and macronutrients purely by virtue of your habits okay and that's I think the goal for most people, you don't have to get to that point. Some people like tracking their calories and they do so for, you know, many, many years. But if you can get to the point where you're able to look at your plate and say, yeah, roughly 600 calories. Yeah, that's roughly 40 grams of protein. Boom, done. Let's eat. That's a good position for most people to be in. You want to be able to regulate it yourself. You don't have to track calories forever. And that's the purpose of tracking. The purpose of tracking paradoxically is so that you don't have to track because now you have the knowledge and nutrition, you have the skills, you have the knowledge and you don't need to do it anymore. I think that's the goal for most people. And that's where we like our clients to get to. 100%. Like tracking is literally just a tool and we're using that tool for the period of time that we need to use it. And then once we've, you know, understood the diet, the fundamentals of the diet, we can switch to something else. We can just basically go, Oh yeah, look, that's what 2,500 calories looks like on a plate on a single plate, <laughs> but on a, on a day's eating, I need to eat 2,500 calories. I'll just eat in and around that. You know, there might be some times where you're like, I actually don't know how many calories are in this. You might use a tracking tool, like my fitness pal or whatever to go, Oh, lasagna, like how many calories are in a serving of lasagna? You just pop that in, you go, Oh, it's roughly whatever it is. Right. And you go, okay, so that's how that fits into my overall structure, my overall day, you know? So you don't need to track forever. Tracking is a phenomenal tool we use with a lot of our clients. It can lead to issues for some people. And for some people, it would be, um, you know, it's not something that I would use. Like if someone comes to me and they're like, oh, I've had a history of disordered eating, uh, especially around like tracking calories, like I'm probably not going to go, yeah, just download my fitness pal there and, you know, we'll see how you get on. Like for some individuals, that might be what they need. They just need to be like, feel like they're in control. And we're going to use that to kind of slowly start introducing a more you know healthful way to deal with the diet and um, but for the vast majority of people that are coming from some sort of like disordered eating background probably not going to first off off the bat go like yeah look my fitness pal bro <laughs> um which brings me to the next point which is like dealing with your relationship with food and this is one of those things where like this means so many different things to so many different people so we can't get into all the nitty-gritty of it right now but either way 
you need to have a good relationship with food and to have a good relationship with food, you usually need to have a good relationship with yourself. Um, so we need to work on that. Um, but from a dietary perspective, a food perspective, what we're generally focusing on with our clients is instilling good habits, good habits with food, rather than focusing on, like, say, the end result. Like, we're not focusing on the fat loss. We're focusing on, oh, are you eating enough fruit and veg? Are you eating enough protein? Are you feeling good in the gym? Are you feeling good in your day-to-day life? You know, we're focusing on, like, the here and now. We're focusing on all of those other things that, you know, are more habitual or more, like, what are you actually doing and how are you feeling as a result of that? Like, we're focusing on that and we're letting the end results occur as a kind of a byproduct a natural byproduct of the habits that we're engaging in you know um and we find that is a much better way for people to go about you know dealing with the diet than focusing on oh i need to lose five kilos and i'm going to be happier and i'm going to be able to love myself when i'm five kilos lighter like that generally doesn't work like there is an aspect of you know maybe you do actually just really enjoy the way you look when you're five kilos lighter cool we can respect that but that doesn't mean that we need to be so tied up in that as our identity that we can't be happy unless we are five kilos lighter, you know? And so we focus on the habits. We just focus on really good dietary habits, really good like exercise and lifestyle habits and lock that stuff down because that's the stuff that's actually going to keep you going throughout. Right. Cause you see this all the time. A lot of people will have really good habits when they're in a dedicated fat loss phase. They're like, okay, I need to you know, get my sleep in. I need to get my hydration. I need to do X, Y, and Z, all of these good habits. And then as soon as they're finished their diet, they just don't have these good habits anymore. They're just eating whatever. And like you see this all the time in the health and fitness world. People will be like, oh yeah, I'll diet, diet for a holiday or whatever. And then all other times they're just eating like crap. They have no like dietary structure, no really good diet systems in place. And we don't think that's conducive to long-term health. So I would rather you just build good habits. Yeah, maybe we might do it while we're dieting, but we're going to build those good habits so that they can carry you through into periods of eating in a surplus, eating at maintenance, or just free living. Like you're still following good dietary habits, you know? Yep, check. That's it. Anyway, Gary, is there anything else you would like to say on the nutrition front? Because obviously, look, we're trying to keep these episodes relatively short and sweet um obviously nutrition is a big huge topic like we've done entire podcast series on this so we're not going to cover absolutely everything but i hopefully or hopefully by listening to this you've got the key points you can go away and go yeah look i know how to set up my diet i know there's some of these pitfalls they've identified here are some things that you know potentially i need to be thinking about and you can kind of go away and go okay i know what to do um obviously it's not everything you know, you can look, listen to the rest of our episodes. You know, there's a huge catalog. This is like episode, whatever, 230 or something. Um, so there's a huge catalog to go back and listen to. We do free information on our website. We have coaching. We have a whole host of things that you can engage in, like our Instagram page, for example, and get more of the nuance. But hopefully this gives you a little bit of a synopsis. So anyway, Gary, do you have anything else to say? And if not, where can people find us? That's everything from us. So if you'd like more detailed help and personalized help with your nutrition or training and overall approach to your goals, of course, we do have coaching spaces available so you can work with any member of the triage team by applying in the description box 
below or discussing the coaching process with us. We also put out a lot of free content. As we said, we've got the podcast here, of course. I hope you're subscribed. I hope you're sharing episodes. I hope you're leaving your review. We much appreciate that. And we also put out a lot of information on social media. So you can follow us at Triage Method on Instagram. And if you follow us there, you'll find all of our individual pages and you'll be able to find a lot of valuable content that will help you out. We also have a newsletter that goes out each week. It's the Triage Method newsletter, which you can subscribe to below and get exclusive content that doesn't get released on our social media. So if you do all that, you'll be well on the path to better health, performance and body composition. Splendid. Anyway, I have nothing else to say, so I hope everyone enjoyed that and we'll see you in the next one.